This is Calvary Baltimore's Harford County Bible Study with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Okay, Matthew chapter 4. So I was a little sneaky. I taught Matthew 3 on Sunday, which I'm sure some of you picked up two Sundays ago. Uh, and I finished the chapter out. So we're, we're picking up a chapter 4 here. Um. So far in the life of Jesus, will you have this air conditioning vent blowing on me? It's wonderful. This is great. I need one of these on Sunday. (laughs) And just put one strip of bacon in the vent so I feel at home. So so far in the life of Jesus, uh, we have been shown how the story of Israel has been being fulfilled and retold in the life of Jesus. If you remember in the first part of Genesis, or first part of Matthew, Matthew starts at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, then he starts at Abraham. So we're introduced to Father Abraham. Uh, and then we move to the second portion of Matthew's gospel, and it's the story of Joseph, Jesus' father. We have Joseph the dreamer, who's connected to the Joseph in Genesis, who's also a dreamer. As the Joseph in Genesis saved bread for the nations, so Joseph, Jesus' father Joseph saved Jesus the bread of life. So we have this cool connection. Then we get to chapter 2, and we are introduced to a new pharaoh within a new Egypt. We are introduced to Herod, uh, who is king of Jerusalem. And he, just like the pharaoh from uh, the first chapter of Exodus, orders the death of uh, God's children, of uh, Hebrew children. And so the Genesis, or the, the pharaoh of the Exodus, throws the children into the Nile, and Herod kills the newborn children, or the newborns within Bethlehem. And the inversion is, is that Israel has become the new Egypt. And Egypt becomes the place of refuge as Joseph and Mary uh, bring baby Jesus into Egypt for safety. And then chapter 3, we see we're introduced to an Elijah type of character with John the Baptist. And then we are, uh, then the story of Jesus picks up, which clues us that the story of Israel is going to continue. Uh, And then Jesus immediately is brought into the water. And so now we have a Red Sea type of crossing where the waters were parted and we see those sorts of themes. Now here we are in chapter 4. And like how the Israelites failed in many of the situations, tests, and trials within the wilderness. Because remember, after they passed through the Red Sea, we're in the wilderness. Here we see that Jesus is faithful when Israel was faithless. When you, when you read the Old Testament account of the wilderness, you immediately get struck at how often the Israelites are failing. <laughs> I mean, they are complaining nonstop. They're setting up golden calves. They're worshiping false idols. They're sleeping around. They're doing everything wrong imaginable. Uh, but Matthew is now retelling the story in a way through Jesus But with a key difference, Jesus is going to reverse all of the failures of Israel. He's he's going to meet each season of Israel's history with faithfulness. And today he, he is almost redoing the wilderness period within his own story. And he, as he confronts Satan and is tempted with three different ways, Jesus is going to reverse a lot of the failures 
of who what the Israelites should have been faithful in. Uh, so we, we have a lot of fun stuff to, to look at here. Uh, chapter 3. Oh, you know, a little, little pause here. Um, when the Bible was first written, there were not verses or chapters. They were only books. So sometimes we can go, okay, let's read chapter 4, but not realizing that it wasn't written that way. And so we really should be reading chapter 4, verse 1, in light of how chapter 3 ended. So uh, we'll, we'll start there. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Verse 1, chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Pause. Already amazing connections. Who's leading Jesus here? Well, not yet. The Spirit. But it's coming. That's true. <laughs> not yet. The Spirit. And, and, and in the wilderness period, in the Exodus, what led the Israelites? Well, the Holy Spirit. The pillar of fire, yeah. as is seen in the Holy Spirit. So, an amazing thought, as the pillar of fire descended upon the tabernacle, well, first of all, it led the Israelites in the wilderness as the Spirit's leading Jesus into the wilderness, so that connection's already amazing. But then you think about what the pillar of fire did in the wilderness. It descended upon the tabernacle. What did the Spirit just do in the life of Jesus? It descended upon Jesus at his baptism. Furthermore, what, is, what does Jesus say later in the Gospel of Matthew? Remember, he stands at the temple and he says, you destroy this temple, in three days I will rebuild it. He called him, my body is the temple of the Lord. So it's almost as if Jesus' baptism was a type of a tabernacle ceremony that's happening here. But maybe not, but it kind of seems to fit. But either way, there's clear connections here that this is the glory cloud from the Exodus. Uh, it's leading Jesus in a way. So again, we're thinking wilderness period. Now, a question we should should have is why does the Spirit, have you ever thought, why does the Holy Spirit come on Jesus and then lead him into the wilderness to get tempted? <laughs> uh, I think it's in the book of James. Doesn't it say that the Lord, don't say any temptation is from the Lord? Isn't that in James? Because uh, the Lord doesn't tempt. So the, the first thing we have to acknowledge here is that God isn't actually tempting anyone. Satan is, which is to your point. Satan's doing the tempting, not, not God. But regardless, God's leading him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. So that's kind of tricky there. So for clarity, we, we have to understand that this tempting can mean different things. So Satan tempts us in order that we may fall into sin. Jesus never tempts us that we may fall into sin. He is holy. He's separate from, from all sin and perversion. And James is right. Got nothing like that, if it isn't James. Uh, does not come from the Lord. But God clearly does tempt us. Uh, a good text to help us make sense of this is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Uh, and, and we're So we know we're in the wilderness because of all the illusions. So we want to think wilderness, period. But then Jesus is going to quote three different scriptures to Satan, and all three of them are from Deuteronomy. So we should be thinking Deuteronomy at this time. So Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, 
and you shall remember the whole way of the Lord, the, 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 the whole way that the Lord your God has led you for these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, and here we go, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So the God tempts, and he tempted people in the wilderness. Uh, the first part to this is the Lord is testing Jesus as he tested Israel. And remember, again, Jesus, uh, God is, or Matthew is retelling the story of Israel within the person and work and life of Jesus Christ. And if Israel was tempted in the wilderness, it would make sense if we're going to follow this pattern of great reversals that Jesus would be tested uh, in, in the wilderness. But unlike Israel's failure, surprise, surprise, Jesus is perfect and doesn't fail. So Jesus is going to succeed and, and live the perfect life that Israel should have. And if you remember, God, there, there, was, there was languaging in the Old Testament that Israel was God's sons. Israel was God's sons, so they should have been God's perfect son, but they failed. Yet here we see once again, Jesus has brought about a great reversal. Secondly, Jesus is being tempted to show us what is most deeply in his heart. And of course, uh, he, he shows that Jesus is totally reliant upon his father for all things. So the father tests the son's faithfulness, and the son is perfect and without wavering. So God's, Matthew is cluing people that know the Old Testament. We now know that, that Jesus is, is being tested by God, and he comes out totally spotless. This is cluing us that he is the perfect sacrifice that's coming down the road. He is perfect Israel within himself. And if we turn this to the church... Uh, we can also apply this to us because doesn't God bring us into seasons of testings too? <laughs> uh, you know, we all go through seasons where everything's stripped from us, uh, our health, our status, our family. Uh, and God does this not only to test us, but he tests us. You know, we see that to skim away the dross in, in the New Testament. But something I feel like has been lost is God tests us to bring us into maturity. And what I mean is God, God doesn't lead us into these seasons that we might sin. God's not going, oh, I hope you fail. <laughs> but he does this to strengthen us, to refine us, to prepare us for the next trial, the next season, the next mission. Um, I, I think there, there, there's a misunderstanding of trials that God's maturing us through all these things and strengthening us. Um, you know, what, what does Paul talk about in Romans 5, that suffering produces endurance, endurance, what, how does it go, endurance, joy? Does anyone know the, I forget sometimes, like, but anyways, part of it is, is there's, a, there's an endurance that happens. There's a strengthening and a, a grow, he, he grows us. So let's talk for a second about the Garden of Eden. <laughs> Have you ever wondered, God made the garden and everything was perfect? Then why is there one stinking tree that's bad in the garden? Have you ever thought about that? Okay. Uh, I have too. So I'm going, God, what's the deal? And I've come to realize, and, and I, my conviction is, is the tree wasn't wrong. God didn't make perfection and left one pimple on it. 
I believe the tree, I think Satan was right that it, well, God called it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, God is perfect and he knows good and evil. Not intimately, not experientially, he is an evil. I believe that Adam and Eve were eventually to mature to the place where they could partake of that tree. I don't think they were ready yet. Uh, and they were forced into it. I think there was a level of maturity that needed to happen before they could experience the fruit of good and evil. And and this is part of the pro progress of the church through the ages and Israel through the ages. You notice the law continues to expand within within uh, the Noah's covenant and then within the Torah and then within the prophets it expands and the Psalms stretch it, and then Jesus brings a whole new layer. God's always maturing his sons and daughters. This is just the way that he works and, and again, this is how God worked in the garden with Adam. Uh, and this is how God's working with the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 8, as we just read. This is how God is working with Matthew uh, or Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. And this is how God works with us. He's constantly growing us and stretching us. And stretching hurts. <laughs> what did Jesus say? In order, we need to die to self as uh, Tozer says it's not fun to die. <laughs> we need to grow. Uh, and so there's a growing aspect here. Uh, then verse 2. Verse 2. <clears throat> and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, right there, I would have been disqualified from attempting <laughs> this job. <laughs> you know, I love this. He was hungry. <laughs> Well, that goes without saying, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. But I think it's really important that we understand that, again, Jesus was truly God and truly man. You know, there's the humanity of Christ that we so often disconnect, uh, which is not good. And so in his humanity, he's hungry. Now, I have no doubt that this is more than, yeah, I could eat something. <laughs> this is weakness. This is shaky. This is not hangry, because I don't think God got hangry, but close. You know, this is, he's, he's at the end of himself, I'm sure. Verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We're done our reading. I couldn't go any further. We did not have time uh, to fit this into a 30-minute teaching. So we're going to do part two next time. But for today, I want to talk about the first temptation. Because there is so much goodness here. Satan's first temptation to Jesus is to tempt Jesus to make bread from stones. So a few thoughts on verses 2 through 4. First, Satan tempts with bread. If you remember the story of Israel in the wilderness, the very next chapter, after they cross through the Red Sea, and then remember they have the Song of Moses? It's this glorious song. It's beautiful. But then the very next chapter, so in chapter 15, they're singing all glory to God. By chapter 16, they're grumbling. <laughs> they're upset. We're thirsty. We're hungry. And they're grumbling against God. They're grumbling against Moses. And specifically, they grumble for bread. 
They wanted the bread like they had in Egypt. Well, here in Matthew, what's Satan tempting Jesus with? He's tempting him with bread. The very way the Israelites fell in the wilderness. So just on that basis alone is Satan trying to create this unity within the Godhead. It makes sense because remember it says a third third of the angels. He got a third of the angels. Maybe he's trying to get a third of the Godhead here in in the Christ man. Uh, But either way, Jesus has entered into the wilderness and a temptation to grumble for bread is now presented to him. And Jesus responds with a passage out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. You know what I love? Satan tempts him three times, and all three times Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. How horrifying would that be if your ability to fight Satan was predicated on how well you've memorized Deuteronomy? (laughs) We'd be in real trouble. But here Jesus comes. You know, he's firing them off. And you shall remember, Deuteronomy 8.1, or 8.2, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. The testing is to see if God keeps the commandments. Uh, Deuteronomy 8.3, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God revealed in Deuteronomy that he allowed the testing of bread that they may learn to trust on the promises of God and not on their own stomach growling, not on their own circumstances. And here Jesus is revealing that he is totally and completely living upon God's provisions. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being in such a state of mind, your house burns down, praise God. You're just absolutely dependent upon God. That's the real miracle of Jesus Christ. Rabbi, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And then, of course, love your neighbors yourself. No person's ever done that for one minute in their entire, one second in their entire life. Jesus did it throughout his entire humanity. That's the incredible bit of who Christ is. Uh, and so Jesus is completely and totally submitting to not only the will, but the purposes of God. If God doesn't want to rain manna for me, okay. He must desire this for me uh, without wavering, without hesitation. So clearly he's the perfect son of God. Uh, the second thing we need to ask ourselves is why has Jesus not eaten in 40 days? I believe it's in the Gospel of Mark where it says he was amongst the wild animals. Did he have to fight those wild animals? Like, we don't know. But the question is, you know, if if I kill a rabid, I don't know, mongoose, I'm eating that thing. So what's the, you know, even John the Baptist, he had locust and wild honey in that very same wilderness. Uh, He also came from the Jordan. Couldn't he just have walked? 10 miles that way and got some water. I mean, what, what, what's happening? Why is Jesus not eaten in 40 days? Well, there's the element of testing, which we've run through. But Jesus is not just a more faithful Israel. It's also important. Who have we seen Jesus as at this period in Matthew's gospel? He's been Moses. 
He's also a new Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses says in verse 20, or Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 24, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. He's talking to Israel. So I lay prostrate before the Lord these 40 days and 40 nights, because the Lord has said he would destroy you. One of the most upsetting portions portions of, of all of the scriptures to me is when the Israelites worship the golden calf. I cannot read that and not get emotional. And here's Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> Behold the God that brought you out of Egypt. Um, well, after the, the golden calf incident, Moses got into the presence of God and fasted 40 days in 40 nights in order that God may see him and spare the people. Well, in these three temptations, uh, these three temptations in Matthew that Jesus is about to overcome, in the last temptation, Jesus is presented a type of golden calf. If you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. But unlike Israel, Jesus is going to refuse to bow down to worship to a false idol. Now, as we put all this information together, we see that Jesus is like a new Moses, but also is that like Moses, Jesus is the intercessor for the people as he fasts for 40 days. Like how Moses fasts for God's mercy and grace upon the wayward and the Israelites who have fallen away. Here Jesus is, is fasting uh, for the people as Moses did. And this shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us because the author of Hebrews says, uh, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented, uh, pre uh, prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him since, and I love this part, he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is an intercessor. And here it seems he's intercessing on behalf of wayward Israel. First John 2, 1, Jesus is our advocate before the Father. So as we draw from the 40-day theme of Moses, it seems that Jesus is fasting for us. What does Jesus need to fast for? <laughs> he's not in sin. Yeah, I don't think he needs clarity on anything. I think he knows exactly what he, he's doing. It seems he's making intercession for the wayward of Israel, the, the people. Thirdly, we, so I told you, we have so many points. There was not a chance we were getting to yeah. verse 5. <laughs> Thirdly, notice chapter 3 ends with the Father declaring Jesus as my, quote, quote my beloved son. And how does Satan begin his temptation? Anyone? How does Satan begin the tempt his first temptation? If. 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 If you are the son of God. Well, God just said he was his son. Satan immediately, three verses later, if you are his son. Here Satan is directly attacking Jesus' identity as God's beloved son. Has anyone ever felt this attack before? <laughs> if Satan wants to tempt the child of God, typically he starts with our status with God. 
He starts with our identity in God. Here Jesus, or here Satan is starting off with, if you are God's son. And he does the same thing with us. If you really are saved, (laughs) if you really are adopted, Satan attacks our identity in Christ. But notice, in both of the if temptations from Satan, they are both met with the same responses. So the first and the second temptation both start with if. I I find that so fascinating. And they're both met with the same exact response. Jesus' response in both instances with, it is written. So twice Satan says, if you're the son of God, and both times Jesus responds with, it is written. I love that. When, when, When the identity of Jesus' sonship is questioned by Satan, Jesus goes right to the word. Jesus If you ask people, how do you know that you're a Christian? A lot of times people will go to experiences. I was moved at a conference when I was 13 and came forward. Uh, Or people feel that they're saved because of some feeling they have. Or sometimes, and sometimes scary, they'll point to their fruit. Look at all I've done, God. But here, notice Jesus doesn't do any of that. He goes right to the Word of God. You know, I used to, when I was a young kid, really struggle with insurance. I I saw those Left Behind movies from like the 70s and 80s, and I was convinced I was goner. I was done. Jesus was coming, and I was left behind. That's what's going to happen. And really, I I, I had to come to to peace because I, I realized... I would ask myself, how do I know that I'm saved to dig myself out of a terror pit? And I would always draw from feelings. Well, I feel like I'm saved right now. (laughs) And some days you don't feel saved. Or I would feel saved because I was doing good against some sin at that time. And then you fail and, well, God doesn't love me anymore. Uh, and you, you get into this dance and you, you feel your, your assurance in God is like the tide. It's in one moment, it's out the next. But if we would simply turn to the word of God as Jesus is showing us here, we lean upon the promises of God, not our experiences. We lean upon the promises of God, not our feelings. And it was once I stopped trying to make myself feel it (laughs) and just started believing what he said about it, I was set free. And so twice Satan goes for the identity of Jesus Christ, if you are the son of God, and twice Jesus goes, well, the Bible says, he goes right to the word. And I think this is really, really instructive for us to go to the word with, with issues of assurance. And, and a, a fun little pastoral note here, in the early church, they didn't have a hundred books of struggling with assurance or struggling with faith. They didn't have pamphlets to give each other. So a lot of times the early church, when, when someone struggled with assurance, they would tell them to read First John. First John's the book you read if you don't know you're a believer. And in that, you know, John really runs through everything. You know, he who says he has no sin is a liar. <laughs> You know, there goes those people that think, you know, oh, I've sinned, I'm doomed. It's like, no, no, you know, but but John, 
leans really upon who Jesus is, that he is our great advocate before the Father. Again, all these themes are, are intertwined here, but we go right to the word on, on the issues of assurance. Uh, fourthly, I want you to notice, we have five points, this isn't going to go on forever. Uh, fourthly, I want you to notice that the weapons Jesus used to fight the temptation of Satan was the sword in Ephesians 6. I want to read it for you. It's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, which tells us there's ways to put on pieces. <laughs> I got my helmet today, but not my pants, God, no. Put on the whole armor that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle, remember that word means grapple, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole, there we are again, put on the whole thing, the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So Satan doesn't just have arrows, he has flaming arrows. He's a jerk. Verse 17, and take up the helmet of salvation, and here's the one I'm, I'm focusing on, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Jesus was victorious over Satan's assault on his sonship by fighting back with scripture. Scripture, according to Paul, was a sword. And Satan is a dragon, a serpent. Uh, and he needed a sword to fight him. Surprise, surprise, the word of God. So Satan wants Jesus to grumble against God's plan for his life by altering it. And Jesus pulls from the scripture to combat him. We have to see this. Jesus has not eaten in 40 days. I can't imagine. He does not feel good. He's not having a... Have you ever heard the term, I'm having a mountaintop experience right now in faith? He's not having a mountaintop experience. He's tired. He's hungry. He's worn out. If Jesus' faith was built upon spiritual butterflies or emotions, he would not have survived this. In his humanity, he would not have survived this. His emotions did not carry him through the storm, but his knowledge of the truth did. The, 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 these words have been Deuteronomy 6.6, 6, stored in his heart. Jesus is very much a model of Psalm 119.11. I have stored, uh, stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I love that. Love that verse. So very clearly, God's people must store up God's word. God's people must store up God's word because you're going to have times where you do not feel it. It's just going to happen. And you have to know it and believe what you've read and have stored more than what you feel. Jesus isn't the way the true the way the feeling and the life. He's the truth in the life. And we build our lives upon the truth. And now our fifth point. 
our last point. We would not have gone. To, I felt really bad. We were. I was only doing four verses because I felt like we we're going to get in a revelation trap in, on these things and just never make progress. But um, it's, it's all we had time for. Uh, fifthly, Jesus no, knew the word. Absolutely. <laughs> he gave it. <laughs> he knows the word. But what we absolutely must recognize about the temptation of Jesus Christ, and if you hear anything from today, this is it, is that Jesus did not overcome the devil primarily because he knew the word of God. Jesus overcame the devil because he lived the word of God. And there is a world of difference between those two things. How many people do we know come Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? No change <laughs> occurs after months and years. That maybe was you. Months and years, nothing. You know, Paul talks about the exposition of the word of God as food. He says, some of you are drinking milk when you should be eating meat. You know, uh, we go to a church that's filled with lots of Bible. I'm, I think we're eating cheesesteaks on Sunday and bacon on top and some nacho fries. And we're eating a lot of calories on Sunday. And how many people, they just Thanksgiving dinner it up and then don't exercise. You eat that much all the time and don't move, you're going to get fat and die. You know, you have the people don't exercise the word. And then so many people store the word, but then they live the exact opposite. Have you ever heard the term a carnal Christian? Anyone ever heard that term before? It's, I, well, I'm a Christian, but I can live however I want, which is really antinomianism, but that's a whole other topic. But you know, you have these people that's like, oh, I'm covered by grace and I can do whatever I want. And, and they have the word stored, but they don't They don't live the word. And faith without those works is dead, shipwrecked. Um, so many people are hearers of the word, but not doers. I want to read James 1, 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Whew, what a great word in our day of outrage, huh? Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Notice it's not your feeling of the word. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. There's a deception that comes with only hearing. There's a specific deception that comes with only hearing. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and, and notice not bondage, and, and perseveres being no hearer who, for, who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Last verse. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. <laughs> worthless. Um, if Jesus knew the word but did not live it, he, he would have failed. And I, I think that's 
I think that's the first thing with the first temptation we have to be struck by. Because the same is true for all of us. It is no different, the Bible lays out very plainly. So one of my heroes is a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon. I almost wore a shirt of him today. Um, I named my second son, his middle name Spurgeon. He has this great line, he says, do not tell me a man has learned a new doctrine until he, I have seen the fruit of it in his life. Because he used to run a pastor's college and he, so many people come and they know everything because they're brilliant. But unless you are changed by it, you don't know it. You don't possess it. You might have an intellectual ability to recall it, but it's not part of you. When Satan comes, that doesn't, that's not what comes out. <laughs> you turn that wilderness into a bakery. You know, you start turning every stone into bread. Well, the reality, you know, to build upon Spurgeon's points, like we actually have to live this if we're actually going to overcome the evil one. It's not enough to just know it. We have to live it and apply it. My, my wife... Uh, Vanessa, she, she, we were sitting around the other day. We were just chatting. She asked me a question, and I, I keep thinking about it all the time. She says, if you weren't a pastor anymore, how would your faith be? Do you think you'd still have a strong faith? And I said, I do. I said, she goes, do you think your faith would change? I said, I don't. I said, because I, I truly desire to be a godly man above all else who just happens to be a pastor. <laughs> right. I said, and if I was a roofer, I would be a godly man who happens to be a roofer. But I think that's the whole key to the Christian life. It's like, yeah. Pastor's not anyone special. You know, it's just a certain calling. You know, we're many members of one body and God chooses members. I couldn't do what Maria does, are you kidding me? It would sound terrible. I just couldn't facilitate, but that's a gifting, you know. And but the whole thing, and when, when when I first asked Maria to come on, I, I said, you know, I'm just looking for godly people. You know, he he equips ability. We need godly people, and we see that so plainly here in this story. Jesus, in his humanity, was a he knew the word, but he lived the word, and that made all the difference in the world. And if we're going to conform to the image of Christ, it's really that simple. We just have to stop listening and start doing it. And, and ultimately, what it really comes with is being Christ-like in ordinary things. You know, we, there, there's such a natural, supernatural thing. There, there was a man who, who got radically saved in the 1500s. He was a shoemaker, a cobbler. And he walked up to Martin Luther and he said, Luther, I'm saved. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> He's saved. He goes, what should I do? Should I sell my shoe shop, my cobble shop? And should I give it all to the poor? Should I become a missionary to the people somewhere? Should we? And, he, and Luther, Luther was inquiring. He goes, so what do you do? And he said, I'm a shoemaker. And he, he gives this advice and I draw from it all the time. He says... Make a fine shoe and sell it at a good price. And, and it's just being godly wherever God puts you. It's that simple. 
But that's living the word. <laughs> you know, it's not, you know, we see that Matthew 7 crowd. Lord, Lord, I did many miracles in your name. I casted out demons in your name. Away from me, you work as a lawless. I never knew you. They weren't godly husbands and fathers and daughters and mothers and co-workers and neighbors and you know this is this is the key this is the, it's that simple and as we spoiler alert get into to the second and third temptation it's the faithfulness of Jesus that's elevated to this superlative degree as he fights satan that he's verified as the son of God, which then happens at Calvary, which I can't wait to talk about, but that's another time. But anyways, that, that's the whole thing. I'm done. <laughs> Why don't we pray? And we can, we can chat about a little bit, huh? God, we love you. We, we praise you and we, we thank you. We ask that you would um, store this word in our heart <laughs> and then help us to do it. And God, we pray that when we wake up and we read our Bibles that we may you may store it in our heart and help us to live it. And may we do this until you call us home. Help us to be faithful, godly people in every circumstance through the power of your Holy Spirit and to the delight of you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Jesus in his humanity was a he knew the word but he lived the word. And that made all the difference in the world. And if we're going to conform to the image of Christ, it's really that simple. We just have to stop listening and start doing it. And, and ultimately, what it really comes with is being Christ-like in ordinary things. You know, it, we, there, there's such a natural, supernatural thing. There, there was a man who, who got radically saved in the 1500s he was a shoemaker, a cobbler, and he walked up to Martin Luther and he said, Luther, I'm saved. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> He's saved. He goes, what should I do? Should I sell my shoe shop, my cobble shop? And should I give it all to the poor? Should I become a missionary to the people somewhere? Should we? And, he, and Luther Luther was inquiring, he goes, so what do you do? And he said, I'm a shoemaker. And he, give, he gives this advice, and I draw from it all the time. He says, make a fine shoe and sell it at a good price. And, and it's just being godly wherever God puts you. It's that simple. But that's living the word. <laughs> you know, it's not, you know, we see that Matthew 7 crowd. Lord, Lord, I did many miracles in your name. I casted out demons in your name. Away from me, you work as a lawless. I never knew you. They weren't godly husbands and fathers and daughters and mothers and co-workers and neighbors. And, you know, this is this is the key. This is the, It's that simple. And as we, spoiler alert, get into to the second and third temptation, it's the faithfulness of Jesus that's elevated to this superlative degree as he fights Satan, that he's verified as the son of God, which then happens at Calvary, which I can't wait to talk about, but that's another time. But anyways, that, that's the whole thing. I'm done. <laughs> Why don't we pray? And we can, we can chat about a little bit, huh? God, we love you. We, we praise you and we, we thank you. We ask that you would... um. Store this word in our heart <laughs> and then help us to do it. Amen. And God, we pray that when we wake up and we read our Bibles, that we may, you may store it in our heart and help us to live it.
And may we do this until you call us home. Help us to be faithful, godly people in every circumstance. Through the power of your Holy Spirit and to the delight of you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Godly people in every circumstance. Through the power of your Holy Spirit and to the delight of you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us for Calvary Baltimore's Harford County Bible Study Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch or come visit us at Calvary Baltimore, head to calvarychapelbaltimore.org for service times and directions. If you have a prayer request or you've just been blessed by today's teaching and want to say hi, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. To donate to the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. Pastor Josh and all of us at Calvary Baltimore consider it a blessing to serve you. We hope you'll join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore Harford County Bible Study Podcast.